Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 78 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. My guest today is Howard Bloom. Howard studied at Stanford University, where he received both his bachelor's and master's degrees and has worked as a reporter for the New York Times, where he was nominated twice for the Pulitzer Prize. More recently, he was a contributing editor for Vanity Fair. He's also the author of several best-selling nonfiction books, several of which have been optioned for films. I invited Howard onto the podcast after reading his book, The Spy Who Knew Too Much, an ex-CIA officer's quest through a legacy of betrayal. It's the story of the mysterious death of a senior agency employee, which might not have been a death at all. But before we dive into this story of a Cold War mole hunt at the CIA, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening who is also supporting me on Patreon, including Patrick M. and Amal T. Your monthly contributions there help me keep this podcast going week in and week out. As a way of thanking my patrons, I offer a lot of great freebies and promotions, including free and discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Patrons also get exclusive access to long-form articles of mine that aren't available anywhere else. If you haven't signed up for my Patreon yet, but you want to, just click the link in the show notes on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Howard, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was a story I'd read bits and pieces about in the past, but I never knew the full scope of it until I read your book recently, which was absolutely incredible. Thank you. So I know that, as I said earlier, you've written several books. What was it that led you to this story in particular and made you decide to you know, devote the time it took to write an entire book about it? Well, I've done, as you mentioned, a bunch of books. Many of them involved the CIA. And while researching a previous book, one of the CIA officials were sitting in a downstairs room on the first floor of the agency said, you want to go looking into something that's really intriguing, something that still affects the agency today, even though it happened a couple of decades ago, look into the strange death of John Paisley. And so then I began to poke around, trying to see if there's anything there. But part of what I do in writing these books is trying to discern a narrative, a way of telling the story so that the reader can read it as a factual story. As you said, I'm a former New York Times reporter. Everything I write is true. Every bit of dialogue is true. But I try to arrange my facts in a way that will pull the reader in. And that this requires needing a hero. And that led me to Pete Bagley. Uh, Pete Bagley was the vehicle I had to drive my story forward. And I thought, well, he was a real life CIA agent, someone who had been involved in the early days of the Cold War. He knew where all the bodies were buried, and he'd even buried some of them. And he had also, in addition to having a distinguished career, he was a, a man who had a distinguished pedigree. His 
came from his father was an admiral, his uncle were, was an admiral, both his brothers became admirals. Pete had bad eyesight, so he couldn't go to Annapolis. So instead he had to settle for Princeton. He went and joined the Marines and then he joined the CIA. And the idea of having this hero, who was a real life hero, who could guide readers through a very complex spy drama was exciting to me. Oh yeah, it's it's complex and dramatic as they come, honestly. And I've read quite a few books in this genre, nonfiction books in this genre recently, and this one certainly stands out. And it really is incredible how Pete was right there at the center of so many of these incredible events, you know, right there at the nexus of some of the biggest stuff that happened in the Cold War. And I mean, he was directly involved, you know, the biggest names, the biggest events, everything. It's really something else. So I was glad to get a chance to read about it. I mean, he really is in many ways a man who was a product of his times. He was sort of a zealot through the whole Cold War. When something was happening, he was there. And then what's the most interesting part about this story, which I hope I convey to readers in the book, is that all these pieces in, in Pete's very complex life are finally tied together. All the strands are knotted together, and a puzzle that once seemed impossible suddenly begins to make sense. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know what? That's actually something that I've I've found is is quite rare. There are so many stories that end up without a you know a concrete resolution to them. There are so many things that are not known and probably never will be known. That's been kind of a common theme with a lot of my episodes in the past. But this is one that is you know fairly well wrapped up. I think you know there'll probably always be some dangling strings there. But I, I thought you did a great job of really pulling it all together in a way that leaves the reader satisfied with the the story that you've presented. Thank you. I mean, I, I remember another conversation I had with a CIA official, and I told him while I was researching another book, The Last Good Night, that I was determined to tell the true story. And he starts laughing, laughing really uproariously. And I'm, I'm wondering, what, what did I say? And he tells me, you'll never get the true story. I'll never get the true story. There's always one more file. And I'd like to think that in The Spy Who Knew Too Much, I've gotten about as many files as anyone can get. But certainly, there's one more file buried away somewhere out there that perhaps someday will become it, into the public's domain. Yeah, that's that's always a possibility. But I, I felt very, you know, I, I left, I finished the book very satisfied that I had gotten as much of the story as is possible to get, honestly. So that might not be the case, but it certainly felt like the case when I finished it. Well, no, I, I hope it is. Yes, I, I wanted a conclusion. I I mean, there's a uh, penultimate scene in Moscow on a snowy day outside a cemetery, which I think answers a lot of questions. Yes, yes, absolutely. So Pete passed away several years ago, I know. Did you ever get a chance to meet him personally? No, I, I, did, I was able to speak to some of his members of his family. I was able to speak to some of the members of Paisley's family. Also, Pete wrote a great deal, and he wrote beautifully and incisively, intelligently, and I was able to use his writings, and I was able to speak to many of his friends, both in the intelligence community and also out of it. He led a varied life. He had many interests. He lived for many years in Brussels. He was a student of history, a student of Shakespeare. He studied birds and trees, and he also was obsessed with getting to the bottom of what had gone wrong in the CIA. Mm -hmm. So like you just mentioned, you talked to a lot of his associates and you had a lot of materials available, but you know, this story in many ways, it does not 
portray the agency in a positive light. So did you face any kind of like an uphill battle with, you know, getting access to some of the materials you needed to write this? Did anybody, you know, turn you away, you know, when you reached out to them? Well, when you say it doesn't portray the agency in, in a good light, what this book makes clear is that there are two different factions to this day deeply entrenched inside the agency. Once one group believes that Russia has been deliberately trying to spread disinformation and spread its disinformation agents directly inside the Central Intelligence Agency. They call this the monster plot. The other group in the agency who were less <laughs> willing to speak with me are people who believe that Russia has not been doing this, and this is some invention by fabulous inside the agency. So yes, it was difficult to talk. It was also difficult to talk to intelligence officers while I was doing this research. It was the early days of COVID. I remember, you know, a, a, two intelligence officers agreed to speak with me in the early days before there was even a vaccine, in the days when you know people were seriously thinking about putting bleach uh, into their systems to, to prevent COVID. And usually when an, an intelligence officer is committed to keeping secrets, not sharing them. So when they wanted to speak with me, I drove the seven hours down to the Beltway area. I met with them, but they decided to meet with in a windowless room and they had were too macho to wear masks. So it was that kind of situation where people were willing to talk, but it was no less scary and no less problematic than the people who weren't willing to talk. Hmm. Oh, wow. Look at I see that you were able to push through and get that information, though, and eventually publish the book, even despite all the obstacles that were in place around that time. Yeah, yeah no, I, I risked COVID. I remember leaving that interview and it went on for, gosh, I'd say five or six hours. And the first thing I did when I got outside, I saw a Friendly's ice cream parlor. And I said, well, this is probably my last day. I might as well get a hot fudge Sunday. I haven't had years. <laughs> went off and did that. But I, oh, wow. so I had the hot fudge Sunday and I also survived. Yes, yes. Wonderful on both counts then. So we've been kind of dancing around Pete a little bit, but can you tell me just what was his direct involvement? What was it that led you to writing this book about him, this, the story that led to this mole hunt in the first place exactly? Well, I had heard from someone who was very close to Pete about his involvement in the Paisley case, about his putting the pieces together. And then I, I read one of Pete's books, and he very clearly makes the case that there was a mole inside the CIA. And he also talks about how his own career was damaged by this realization, how he became the subject of suspicions. And I liked him, or pulled into this character who put his own, own career on the line. He first becomes involved by a, a chance happening. He's stationed in Geneva, there's a defect, a man who's a KGB major who was working with as a security official at a conference, an arms conference. And he's been going to the bars in Switzerland and running up a high bar bill. And he notifies the CIA that he'd like them to cover their expenses. And if the CIA will help him out, he'll help out the agency. So Pete unsuspectingly meets with this guy. His name is Yuri Nisenko. 
And Yuri says, great, I'll go back to Russia. I'll be embedded and I'll pass information to you. A, about a year and a half passes and Pete doesn't hear a thing. And meanwhile, people in the agency are thinking that maybe this Masenko is a disinformation agency. He was sent out on a mission to discredit an earlier defector, a guy by the name of Bo Nitsen. He has put all this aside and he's brought back from Europe and he's now handling in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination, what is perhaps one of the most important investigations ever in the history of the intelligence business. Was Lee Harvey Oswald working for the KGB or forces in the Soviet Union when he killed JFK? And Pete is in charge of this investigation at the CIA. He's running it pretty much when suddenly a Notice appears in the lost and found columns in a Geneva newspaper. It's a bit of word code about a dog being lost, but the station in Geneva has been told to look for this, and they've been looking for a year and a half, and notice has never appeared. But this notice means that Yuri Nisenko is popped up again, and he wants a crash meeting with Pete. So Pete has to put down what he's doing, even though it involves... Lee Harvey Oswald, and hightail it to Geneva. And there have been some protocols set up in advance for a meet. What the procedure is that you're supposed to go to the phone book in Geneva, the city of Geneva, look at the page for movie theaters, find the, the cinema at the top of the page, and meet there at 7.15 in the evening of the third day after the notice appeared in the paper. So there's Pete going to the ABC cinema, on the third day, he's wearing a disguise, a phony beard. He has a trilby hat pulled down low because he doesn't know if Yuri has come alone or what Yuri's agreement is with the KGB. Perhaps this is a trap for Pete. But there's Yuri standing in front, and Pete does a brush pass right by him. That's sort of a reverse of a pickpocketing. You go up to someone and you stick, stick something in their pocket rather than taking it out, and it's a bit of paper telling Lysenko where the safe house is. So 20 minutes later, Pete is reunited with Yuri, who he hasn't seen for over a year and a half. They're in the safe house, and Yuri is making his way through very determinedly a bottle of single malt scotch provided by the American taxpayers. That's sort <laughs> of the routine for KGB agents. You drink vodka, in Russia, when you're in the West, you drink single malt. And Pete's thinking, I've made this trip just for nothing. This, this Russian's going to get dead drunk, and I'll have nothing to show for it. When suddenly, Yuri puts down his glass, and he says, you know why I wanted to meet? I have information on Lee Harvey Oswald. I was involved oh, yeah. in his case directly when the KGB decided to allow him to defect, and I also reviewed the files after the assassination on Kennedy to see if there was any involvement by any Russian security officers. I was ordered this by the highest forces in the intelligence community. And so Pete is really excited. And then Yuri says, and I can say categorically that 
Russia was not involved in the assassination of the American president. And he tells himself, this is great. This is just what the world needs to hear. This is what I want to hear. This is what the Warren Commission needs to hear. But even as he's telling himself that, he realizes, well, maybe because I'm hearing it and I want to hear it, maybe it's more disinformation. And mm-hmm. you know, that's the wilderness of mirrors that spies and defectors live in. But Pete certainly decides at that moment that he has to bring Yuri back to the United States. And it's a decision that changes Pete's life and his career. I want to tell you all about my new favorite fragrance for daily wear. It's called Novichok by Clandestine Laboratories. Novichok is distinctive and combines notes of cocoa powder, chocolate almond tort, rose, jasmine, cinnamon, tonka bean, Peru balsam, and musk tonkin. Unlike some of the other colognes I've worn in the past, I found that Novichok stays with me all day, which was a pleasant surprise. If the name sounds familiar to you, then you might already know why I was so happy to find this company and support them. The name itself comes from the very well-known Russian nerve agent Novichok, which has been used in recent years in several assassination attempts, which I've covered here on the podcast in previous episodes. The name is spelled differently, but rest assured, once you put this on, you'll still make a killer impression wherever you go. Novichok is made in small batches by clandestine laboratories and, like their entire lineup, is available only via direct order. If you're not sure which of their fragrances is right for you, you can also check out the Discovery Stash. Six different mini bottles at one great price, which is perfect for finding your signature scent. So make sure to check them out either via a link in the show notes of this episode or at their website, clandestinelaboratories.com, or on Instagram, at clandestinelaboratories. Yeah, what a, what a giant decision that was, and it had some really, really long, far-reaching consequences, I should say, for him, for Nasenko, and for the agency as well. So, but I mean, it was this, do you think it was the right decision at that time? Is that what it seemed like based on the, you know, available evidence that he had? He had no choice. I mean, the Warren Commission, the whole world, we're talking about the possibility of World War III, and here's someone who says he has insider information. You know he's a KGB agent. You need to get to the bottom of it. Is he telling mm-hmm. the truth or a lie? You're not going to just get to the bottom of things with a bottle of scotch in a Geneva safe house. Oh, right, right. Absolutely. So he's got to bring this Nosinko back. And I, I know that there's a huge amount of, I don't want to say drama surrounding it, but a huge amount of intrigue, even more so than already occurred in Geneva surrounding Nosinko and his time in the U.S. for the next few years. And that was that kind of the thing that really divided the agency into the, into the two partitions that you mentioned earlier? Yes, very much. What happens and what really is the catalyst to this division is Nosinko comes back, Pete's interrogating him. And after several weeks, he begins to suspect this guy is lying. He's making things up. Did he look into Oswald? Is he a disinformation agent? I don't know, but something's not right. So then the CIA has to make a decision what they're going to do with Nisenko. First thing they do is they want to make Nisenko believe that they are not suspicious. So they send him off to Hawaii with a bodyguard and a redheaded prostitute that we're paying for, (laughs) you and I, the American taxpayers. He goes off to Hawaii for the week. And when he comes back, a harsh interrogation begins. And this harsh interrogation 
gets a bit brutal. It's sort of in time, it, as Pete becomes more and more frustrated, it becomes a precursor of what went down at Guantanamo. Losenko is taken to Camp Perry, which is a CIA training facility, and he's put into a 12 by 12 room, and he's kept there for about a year and a half. He barely is allowed out of this room, and Pete's determined to break him. And here's the thing. Lysenko says things that contradict one another, but he never admits that he's a double agent. And some people in the agency decide, well, this is Bagley. He's just obsessed and he's gone too far. And Lysenko is a victim of, of this. And there are others who think, well, Lysenko is guilty as sin, but we just can't crack him. And this division is what continues to to to, to by the agency to this day. As I said, some people believe it's a master plot by the Soviet Union to spread disinformation and Lysenko is part of it. Other people believe it's a monster plot, the invention of paranoid CIA agents. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 so funny that, well, not funny, it's, it's so fascinating that it continues to stir discussion even what is this close to 60 years later this was like 1965 or so that this yes. was going on yeah yes and, and the implications are tremendous i mean we are fighting not a cold war anymore but a hot war really with ukraine and it might even become hotter and if our agencies if the cia has been infiltrated if the mole that vaguely believes he discovers is gone on and, and the position has been inherited by another spy in place. Well, that's a very, very dangerous situation. Oh, oh, certainly. So over time, did one of these theories kind of take precedence over the other, or is it still like a an absolute rift? I mean, is, is Norsenko generally accepted as a real defector or as a disinformation agent at this point? There's a rift, but... The official position is that Nosenko not only was accepted as a real defector, but he was exonerated officially by the CIA, given a $75,000 sum in repayment or for what he had suffered. And then he was taken on by as the CIA as an analyst. He winds up giving a talk to CIA officers in the auditorium on the grounds of the CIA complex in Langley, Virginia. He's given us a, a standing ovation while Pete is more or less career is put on hold and he feels he has no choice but to withdraw from the agency to retire as soon as it's possible. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a real shame. And was this the point where he himself came under investigation? Was it directly tied to the Nasinko interrogations and, and you know, kind yes. of Yes, I mean, you know, there Pete becomes the object of this sort of situation that he's created. And they're looking into his past. He's eventually cleared. But even when you're cleared, the stigmata of being put under the microscope still remains. And he will never be able to rise up high in the agency. At one point, Pete was considered someone who would become the director of the agency. And now his career was pretty much stalemated. And he knew unless he was able to march to the, the party line that Lysenko was a victim rather than a disinformation agent, 
his career would be never advanced and would even disintegrate before his eyes. So he decided to retire. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a shame because he was at the the absolute just highest of high points there in you know Moscow in the late 1950s and everything else that he was involved in, and it all turned around right as he was ready to get out. But so he did retire and he did move to Belgium. But kind of the whole point of your the book is that he's kind of pulled back into everything a few years afterwards, right? Right. Just when he thought he was going to get out of it, he's pulled back in. He tried to put his past behind him. He had a lovely life in Belgium. He was happily married for close to 40 years. He had four children he was very proud of. One of his children, his daughter, becomes a CIA officer. Yet there were too many accidents that occurred at the agency for him to believe they were just accidents. And this all culminates in the strange events on the Chesapeake Bay on an autumn morning in 1978. Yes, yes. So we've been kind of alluding to that this whole time, this mysterious death there. So can you, and you mentioned the name Paisley. So can you kind of let the listeners know who is Paisley and exactly what happened to him on the Chesapeake Bay in 1979? Paisley was a high-ranking CIA official. He was technically an analyst, but he was involved in lots of operations. He had an operational side to his career, too, and he was very much involved in, he was one of the people who, in fact, debriefed Yuri Nisenko. He was also involved in an operation called, by the CIA, Gamma Guppy. What was Gamma Guppy? Well, it seems in the Kremlin wall, there are old stables that have been turned into garages. And what the CIA, the, rather the Kremlin keeps the, the cars of their top officials in these garages. And the CIA just happened to have one of the mechanics as an asset. And each morning, the mechanic would go into the cars and set the, the encrypted radio telephone communications so that they could be overheard very clearly by an antenna on the roof of the American embassy in Moscow. And these conversations for a while picked up interesting information, but nothing of operational importance. For example, a, a little borough official making a call to his mistress, another one's wife telling him to lose weight. But finally they hear Brezhnev was talking about how Russia was planning to get around the restrictions in a anti-ballistic missile treaty that they had signed with the U.S. And this was a major success. As you can imagine, Paisley was aware of this. So what happens to Paisley? October 1978, a sailing sloop goes aground on the Chesapeake Bay. The Coast Guard goes to investigate they go on the deck and there are bullets, nine millimeter cartridges scattered around the deck, which of course makes them anxious. They go down below into the galley. They see top secret documents scattered all about, probably look like the basement at Mar-a-Lago. They, they then see this device which that's on and broadcasting, which they later identify as a burst transmitter. A birth transmitter is a device that intelligence agents use to get 
large blocks of information sent in bursts to satellites floating above them. But there's no sign of the owner of the boat. That's this John Paisley, the CIA official who's had this very interesting complex career in the shadows. 10 days later, a body, despite being wrapped up in 38 pounds of chains, floats to the surface of the Chesapeake Bay. The CIA looks at this body, which has been eaten by the Chesapeake Bay crabs, can't recognize it, it's been wasted away, but they say immediately, this is John Paisley, and he committed suicide. Well, the first thing you would do is check out the fingerprints. I mean, all CIA officials or CIA employees have to have their fingerprints on file. However, the CIA now admits with a bit of embarrassment, we screwed up. We never actually got Paisley's fingerprints. I used to try excuses like that in high school, you know, saying the dog had eaten my homework. But, <laughs> but, 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 but they try this, and, and then they try to explain the suicide. Here's how they say Paisley actually did it. He gets on the deck of the boat, wraps himself up like a mummy in 38 pounds of chains. Then he manages to trundle over to the side of the boat. He finds the energy <clears throat> to hurl himself up in midair. While in midair, he has a gun in his right hand <clears throat> because he's right-handed, but he reaches across his body and shoots himself behind the left ear and then kills himself and the body floats to the water. If he were to accomplish that sort of maneuver, he'd have to be an acrobat, a gymnast of great distinction. But I don't think even in that acrobatic explanation or that acrobatic act is as inventive as the CIA's explanation. It's incredible to me that after all these years of having to lie as part of their business, they weren't any better at it. Oh, I know that's such a bizarre story. I guess that's how they explain not finding a spent cartridge or the weapon, right? The the suicide weapon is because they said he was in midair when he fired the bullet into himself. Crossing his left side of his body and he's right-handed. In addition, right. the corpse they discover is wearing size 34 briefs. The, the underwear in Paisley's home is size 38. Paisley's Coast Guard records Show him is five foot eleven. This corpse was five foot seven. None of it makes any sense, but the CIA wants us to believe this. Wow. So Bagley starts to ask himself, why? Why do they want us to believe this? And if this isn't Paisley, then where is he? And if this is Paisley, why did he commit suicide? Or why did someone kill him? And Pushed forward by these questions, Paisley begins a decade-long or even longer investigation that is you know, at the heart, the driving heart of, of my book, Inspired Me Too Much. Yeah, that's so amazing that he picked up those threads and he was on the outside. Now, like, of course, he had the contacts and all that, but he had to do this all on his own initially, I guess, from, from Belgium, but then just put together all the pieces as, you know, an, an outsider. It's really amazing what he was able to do. So how long did he end up spending with this? Did he start in 1979, I guess? 
Yes, yes. He spent, you know, well over a decade and he comes back to the United States. He enlists people to help him. He's totally committed to it. And it looks like he confirms his own suspicions that Paisley was abducted by the Soviet Union. He was exfiltrated. They, they brought him in when they felt when the Soviet Union and Paisley thought the walls were closing in on him, that he was a mole embedded in the U.S. intelligence service. He was about to be exposed. But even after all this time, Paisley can't prove it. It's not until the fall of the Berlin Wall, where there's a brief period of rapprochement, where Bagley then goes on a new mission. He begins to befriend former high-ranking Soviet intelligence officials, people who had been his enemies in a prior life. And they meet frequently, and bit by bit, he not only befriends them, he gets their confidences out of them. And this leads on a trail which takes him on a snowy afternoon to a cemetery in Moscow where everything is revealed. But I don't want to you know, connect all the dots for your listeners. Hopefully, they'll read The Spy Who Know Too Much and find out for themselves. But I'd like to think there is a satisfying conclusion to one of the greatest mysteries of, of the Cold War and its aftermath. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely hope that people will pick up this book after they've heard this story. And, you know, I never like to give away the whole story, of course, because you put a lot of effort into researching and writing and publishing the book, and it, it certainly deserves to be read. And even if we talked about it for an hour and a half, we couldn't, you know, really tell the full story here that is covered in the whole book, but it is absolutely fascinating. So let me just ask you this. Do you personally think that Pete's findings are accurate? Do you think that Pete's version of the story is what actually happened? Because it's not the accepted version. And like you said, he was pushed out of the agency, and it doesn't seem like that's become the accepted version even since then. But do you think that he was the one who finally discovered the truth about what happened? Well, two things. When you say it's not the accepted uh, version, it's not the officially accepted version by the agency. However, there is a very large and vocal minority of intelligence officers who believe what Pete discovered is actually what happened that there was a long embedded mole within the intelligence agency, that he'd been exfiltrated by the Soviet Union and a suicide had been staged. They believe this and I believe it too. Okay, okay. Was Pete's reputation kind of redeemed among the majority of people before his death or was it still a very divisive sort of thing right up until the end for him? It's an extremely divisive thing. Just before his death, there is a a conference of intelligence officers. They're talking about the Cold War, the most distinguished men in the agency. And Pete is brought in onto the phone from Belgium. And he's disparaged and dismissed by many of these people. He's treated by someone who's, you know, barking at the sky. It's a very, you read a transcript of that conference and it's very dispiriting. Yeah, that, that is really unfortunate. And, you know, just from reading through your book, at least, it's very clear to me that he had the best interests of the country at heart, of national security at heart, of the agency at heart. It seemed like his motivations were were very laudable. He wasn't just doing it for selfish reasons by any means. And it's 
unfortunately he had to, you know, have such an uphill battle that he really never fully won before his death, especially no, after all the revolution. He was, he's, was a patriot, and he was a patriot trying to help America. And the real tragedy is not so much his reputation, because I think he and his family are very secure in what he did and what he accomplished, but that his discoveries have not informed the intelligence uh, services to this day. That is that the possibility of their being infiltrated by a double agent still exists. And if the path that Pete exposed would be followed up to the present, it might have shocking conclusions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Some people hate to be proven wrong no matter what in the end. So the official version stays the official version, not just with the CIA, but with so many other organizations all over the world, I'm afraid. But yeah, it's always very, very tough to turn over an institutional belief like that, I suppose. Very much so indeed. And, you know, we, America, pays the price. And as I said before, you know, this occurred in the Cold War. Well, now we're on the periphery of a hot war. We've had conversations these days, <laughs> seemingly rational conversations about what's going to happen if nuclear weapons are used in Europe. That's scary times. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's it's amazing how things have changed so much, but some of the th same things are still echoing and reverberating even now from 40, 50, 60 years ago. So, Howard, are you working on another book right now, now that you've had this one out for a while, or, or what are you up to these days? I just came back uh, a couple of days ago from Moscow, Idaho, another, another Moscow. <laughs> I, I've been covering the student murders there, the four students who were so brutally killed, and I'll have a, a lengthy piece out this weekend on that, and I'm going to be poking around into that for a while. The piece will appear in Graydon Carter's airmail. Oh, wow. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, that, that's really captured the attention of the public the past couple of months, so I'm very much looking forward to reading that then. Yeah, it was a, a real adventure for me to go knocking on doors in, in Moscow, Idaho. I would prefer perhaps to go to Moscow, Russia. Moscow, Idaho is pronounced to rhyme, the locals say, with Costco to, to make it <laughs> sound like Moscow, Russia. Okay, wonderful. So, Howard, do you have any like public-facing social media pages or anything like that if my listeners want to connect with you after they hear this episode? Well, I, I'm a, a bit of a luddite. I'm not really into all the social media stuff. However, I do have people who help me get a, a social media presence. So I do have a Twitter a Twitter account, at Howard Bloom, and I think there is a website, author Howard Bloom, and BLUM, I should, hopefully you can track me down, and there certainly is an Amazon page for author Howard Bloom, so my activities are all out there. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I was able to find you, so hopefully they can as well. <laughs> Yes, they can be sleuths too. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, this is a fascinating story, Howard. Thank you so much for writing it in the first place and then with for sharing it with us here on this episode. For everyone who wants to read it, the book is called The Spy Who Knew Too Much, An Ex-CIA Officer's Quest Through a Legacy of Betrayal. And we will link it up in the show notes as well so that you can easily find it. But it is absolutely worth your time to dig into this story because you'll find that it ties into so many of the other stories that have been discussed here on the podcast in the past and probably will continue to be discussed in many future episodes as well. So Howard, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to reading your future stories as well. Thank you. A pleasure talking with you. Great. Take care.
Bye-bye. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram at Spycraft 101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.